You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Amen. All right, go ahead and grab a seat. And if you will, turn again to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, which is where Clint started us off last week in Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, we, we walked through verses 1 through 7, and he looked at the first two titles that are used to describe the Messiah in Isaiah 9, verse 6. We're going to look specifically at Isaiah 9, 6 and look at the titles of of this, our Messiah. We're continuing this Advent series. Uh, My assignment, our, our assignment, our task this morning really is to study just two words in this verse. Um, but we're going to be just to let you know, we're going to be kind of all over Scripture this morning. So if you've got fast thumbs, that's great. I'd love for you to keep up with us. But if you can't, that's fine too. We've, well, all the passages will be on the, uh, on the screen behind me. But Isaiah 9, 6, we come to the third title that Isaiah gives to this child, this invincible figure who's striding across the world stage that we've been seeing, you know, we see throughout the book of Isaiah prophesied and, and foretold this coming Answer this coming solution to the darkness, to the world's problems, to the ache, and to the distance between our Creator God and ourselves. We see Him, and we see Him announced clearly and joyfully right here in Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. So let's take a let's take a look together. In fact, because this is such a significant and it's such a short passage, let's read this out loud together. Isaiah 9, 6. Will you read this out loud with me? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All right, that's our text for this morning. But really our text is specifically everlasting father. That's what we're going to be looking at. And I'll I'll be honest, this has been a this has been a a bit of a task for me to wrap my head around this past week. I think it's fair to say that of these four titles that are given to the child, that are given to the Messiah, we probably have an idea of of most of them. Like when when we think of wonderful counselor Right? We probably have a general idea of what is meant by Jesus being called Wonderful Counselor, that Jesus would be the divine wisdom that the world so desperately needs, right? And, and we definitely have an idea of what is meant by Mighty God, that Jesus is all-powerful, right? That he is, that he is co-equal with God the Father, that he is not only wise, but he's actually able to do the things that he's planned to do. In fact, I, you know, I think of uh, the disciples who said, like who, like, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him, right? Like, he's got this power over, he's sovereign over creation in a way that we just can't, we can't fathom, we can't wrap our minds around. That's mighty God, right? So we've got categories for that. I, would, I, I think we even, we have a category for Prince of Peace because we would say, well, if, if you're in Christ, you've experienced this, right? Where you, we were enemies with God, but through Christ, we were reconciled to him. We're at peace with him now, right? Or, and or we could even forecast to the future and say, well, no, we know he's coming again. He's going to bring his perfect reign and rule, make all things new, set all things right, and it will be at last, at long last, at peace. 
So we, we've got these categories for most of these titles, but this one, I think the one that's most likely to be confusing is Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. So what is meant by this? What, why, what does Isaiah mean when he calls the Messiah Everlasting Father? If you've been a Christ follower for any length of time, most of us naturally wonder how someone who, who we've grown up hearing or we've been around hearing the second member of the Trinity always referred to as the Son, like the Son of God or the Son of Man, Son, Son, Son. We, like our, our first hiccup is like, well, how could he be the Father, right? That's not, like he's never the Father figure. There's only one Father. There's the, the Heavenly Father, the first member of the, tri- the triune Godhead, right? Or just yesterday, I asked one of my daughters what she thought about this title of Jesus, and she said, well, doesn't it mean that Jesus and God the Father are, are one? Which, is, which I think is a fair question or a fair assumption, but the answer is no. And in fact, if you look through church history, um, there are several, like several, not just one, but several major heresies that stem from that thought that, oh, this is, this is seeing as God the Father and God the Son as, 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 as one. It's called modalism, where, where we, we see a different, it's as if God was one being, oneness theology, is, uh, this is also called. And that's, that's, like, that's a major heresy that leads to some real dangers. But others have thought, like, this is talking about, well, this is, it must be talking about God the Father, right? So a wonderful counselor must have been talking about the Holy Spirit. Everlasting Father must be talking about God the Father. Maybe Mighty God is talking about Jesus the Son. And, you know, uh, Prince of Peace is like Jesus' like, actual reign, like later on chronologically, something like that. And they try to make sense of it that way. That's not, that's not what's going on here. Every single title is referring to Jesus, the Messiah. What does he mean by calling Jesus Everlasting Father? And, and what does that mean to, to us? as Christ followers. There's a little bit of a clue right here in the verse that's really helpful, essentially even. In, in verse six, right in the middle, he says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And here's the clue. And his, his name shall be called. And then he lists them off. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. His name shall be called Everlasting Father. Why, why would Isaiah phrase it that way? Why wouldn't he just say, and he will be Everlasting Father. He will be the Wonderful Counselor. He will be, he's, he's not saying, there's, there's something, he's, he's intentionally couching the language in such a way to show his name shall be called Everlasting Father. Why is this important? Well, let me, let's, let's chase this a little bit. I think this is worth chasing. Names are important. Even today, right? Today, names are important. There's a reason why parents today spend a lot of time and in sometimes agony trying to figure out what their child's name is going to be. And, uh, or, or even like, like some, some couples will bicker, right? Like it'll, call, it'll cause some, 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 some tension because they're trying to figure out what, like what is our child, we've got to find the perfect name because the name, their name brings some kind of identity. And we all know this to be true. Like names give us a sense of who we are. Names carry personal, cultural, familial 
historical connections and meanings sometimes. Even for somebody who says, no, 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 I just, like, I just, I chose that name because I've heard this a bunch too. Well, why'd you pick that name? Well, I just picked it because I like the sound of it. Even that, you like the sound of it, but you like, you like the sound of it because it sounds good in your culture, to your ears, right? It wouldn't, where it wouldn't sound good in another culture, another part of the country even. Right, but that name sounds good to you. That's even that, even that is enculturated in some way. Names are significant. They they do share. They they show. They reflect in some significant ways. Harvard University has scores of studies reaching back all the way to 1948. I was looking into this last night about proving how a person's name can affect their life, and to the, to the point where they found that grades in school. Uh, the way you fit in as a young man or young woman in society, uh, the, the jobs that are more open to you, the more open to some people with certain names and are closed certain, to certain people with certain names. Even career paths are affected. They've, they've shown this. There, there are studies. You can, you can go and you can look at, at, at uh, Harvard University's their online uh, catalog. It's, it's, they've got studies, scores of studies that show how names actually have in effect, and I will say this, parents, if you're naming your child, the weirder your child's name is, the lower the score gets. So just be gracious when you're choosing a child's name. Um, don't think of something so creative. But names matter. I remember when we were naming our our own four kids, Kelly, would, Kelly kept saying, we got, you got like, to have a conversation out loud and hear their name as if they're like, pretend you're having a job interview and use their name. Pretend you're like introducing them as the president of a company and use their name. Pretend you are like, you know, whatever it was, like fill in the blank and use their name, like say it out loud and use their name, right? Like there's, that's, I, she was kind of channeling some of what Harvard University was already tapping into. It's the end of 2023, by the way. So what do you think are the top baby names of 2023? Let's, let's go with girls first. You call them out. What do you think were the top girls' names of 2023? Anybody? Any guess? Nice and loud. Not hearing it yet. Keep going. Oh, man. Our first, the first and second service got these like right away. So, so number three, I'll, t- I'll start with number three. Number three was uh, Amelia. Did anybody say Amelia? I didn't hear it. Number two was Emma. No, you're n- we're nodding our heads. And number one was Olivia. Olivia, beautiful, beautiful name. She, you got it. Good job, Natalie. How about, how about, how about boys' names? Anybody top, top boys' names, 2023? Not Leo, not Chad. Number three was, oh, who said it? Noah. Number one, Noah. Thanks, Noah. <laughs> number, number three was Oliver. Number two was Liam. And names, names mean something to us. We appreciate names. But even in our culture where we appreciate names, what's interesting is in our culture, Names actually reflect more on the parent than they do on the child. They reflect more about the parent's preferences, the parent's 
like trends or like kind of their personality, they reflect more on the parent than they do on the child, names do. In the ancient culture, names were incredibly significant and names really did reflect on the child themselves. And I mean, I mean, think about Genesis 12, verse 2. I will bless you and make, he was talking to Abraham. God was talking to Abraham. He says, I will bless you and make your name great. Or in Proverbs 22, verse 1, it says, a, a good name is worth more than great riches. Like this is your, it's, your name was your character. Your name was your, your heart. Your name was, was, was the essence of who you were represented in your name. Your name was significant. And there were times, they were so significant, in fact, that in the ancient times, they would have this ceremony. They would wait to name a child. They would wait a few days because they wanted the child to live a little bit. They wanted to watch the child. They wanted to think about what they should name this child. And so they would wait eight days until they would, and they would gather all, like once the, ba- the baby was born, they would gather all the family. They'd have this big ceremony. If it, was, if it was a male child, that's when they would be circumcised. But either way, male or female, they would have all this family around. They would make this big announcement, and they would announce the name. And those, those names could be either positive or sometimes they would even be negative. And, and the, what was captured in this name was this name was a little bit of a mission and vision, like a life vision, a life mission for this child. It could be something positive that they would have to live up to, or it could even be something negative that they would have to live down. Like think of like, like, like Noah was named, Noah was named Rest. The name Noah means rest. And his parents actually said, he is going to bring us rest from all of our toils and labor of our hands. This is Genesis 5, 29. They could have called him like retirement plan, right? Like you're going to get us out of work. You're going to take care of us for us, right? They they raised the bar, right? They're like, you got to live up to this, buddy. Or, Or think of Jacob. Do you know what Jacob's name means? Do you know? Deceiver. Somebody got it. Deceiver. He had to live that name down. He didn't do a great job of it, right? Not for the first half of his life, at least. He had to live that name down. Jacob, the deceiver. And, and some names were significant. They were something of a, a, a mission or even a challenge, an aspiration for that child's life. Names were so significant that even God, at times, when he would, when he would grab a hold of somebody and call them out and set their life on a new course and a new trajectory, there were times when he would give that person a new name. Can you think of anybody in the Old Testament? Abram and Abraham, right? Abram meaning uh, great father or exalted father and Abraham meaning father of many. Noah, Noah, Israel. So, so Jacob, who we just talked about, Jacob meaning deceiver, when, when Jacob was wrestling with the angel of the Lord, who would be the pre-incarnate Christ, and, he, and that angel put his hip out of joint, right? Jacob says, bless me. I want you to bless me. And, and he blesses him, and he changes his name from Jacob to Israel. And Israel means contends with God or wrestles with God. The nation of Israel is named wrestles with God. Fascinating, isn't it? 
Names were significant. And names captured something of the heart or the character of the person, something of the mission for which they were put and to which they were put. And so, when we read this, his name shall be called Everlasting Father. Immediately, one of the things then that you should take from this would be to say, okay, here he is, Isaiah, foretelling the birth of the coming king. What kind of king is he going to be? What kind of ruler is he going to be? He's going to be an everlasting father, which is awesome, right? So as students of God's word, then we would have, we would have to ask, okay, well then how? Like how is, how is Jesus the son of God? How is he father? How is he father to me? How is he father to us? Like, what does that actually look like? And how does that actually happen? Like, show us in Scripture. Like, how, is there any evidence in Scripture that, that depicts Jesus as Father? And believe it or not, there's, there's quite a bit. So we're going to look through, we're going to walk through ways in which Jesus is our everlasting Father. I want to show you at least four ways. I, I listed about seven or eight. I'm gonna, I, I narrowed it down to just four, just for our time's sake. I'm going to show you <coughs> Pardon me, four ways which Jesus is our everlasting Father. Look at Isaiah 9 6 one more time and just get this in our minds one more time. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder. So he's going to reign and he's going to rule, right? And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. He'll have all the wisdom, right? Mighty God. He'll have all the power. Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. So Jesus is to us a Father in these ways. Number one, he brings us into the family. He brings us into the family. Jesus is the one who started the new family. Look at, if you, if you, if you want to, you could turn there. But Isaiah 53, verse 10. Isaiah 53 is the famous chapter. It's in Isaiah still, right, where Isaiah's kind of like skipping it all throughout. He, he interjects these uh, prophetic passages about the coming Messiah. In chapter 9 where we are, this is about, it's about his birth. In chapter 53, it's about his suffering. It's about the end of his life. And in chapter 53, they, they, it's this passage that's famously called the suffering servant. It's all about Jesus, all about his sacrifice. But listen to this. Right in the middle of this passage, in verse 10, it says this. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. That's children, right? That's us. That's his spiritual offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. In other words, when Jesus died for sinners, when he made that final sacrifice, when he shed his own blood on that cross, in that act, he produced, he started a new family. Something happened in that act 
where he started a family. So while God the Father, he remains the Father, right? He is the source. He is the ultimate source. He is the ultimate Father, the, the, the one from whom all things come. He is the Father, God the Father. Nonetheless, Jesus, he became a Father in this way where he brings, to new, he brings to life new creations. He started a new family within God's creation, a new humanity within God's creation. There's another really tender passage. In John 14, verse 18, Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I love this. I will come to you. He says, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. So in other words, again, God, still our ultimate Father. Jesus is even calling him Father in this instance. He's the original source. But Jesus is Father-like to us. In other, so in other words, when you're looking at this title in Isaiah chapter 9, it's not referring to Jesus' mode of existence. It's not referring to who Jesus is to the Godhead, everlasting Father. It's referring to who Jesus is to you and to me. To you and to me. He is a father. He is our spiritual father. He is the head of our family. He is our federal head. He represents us. He fights for us. He protects us. He provides for us. He cares for us. Just like a good and loving father ought to do. And he says, I will never, I will not leave you as orphans. He sees us as the orphans that we are, the spiritual fatherless orphans that we are. And he pursues us. He rescues us. I'm a, I'm a rescue, right? If you're in Christ, you are a rescue. Which is, and, and Jesus says, I'm, I have, like, I'm coming after you, right? I'm not going to let you, I'm not going to let you just drift and be out there on your own and fatherless on your own. I will not, I'm going to come after you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to abandon you, ever. I'm coming for you. I care for you. And it's through our faith in Jesus that we have adoption, and then, and I love, and in, in this passage, Jesus says, "I'm in my Father, and you in me." There's, in, in his mind, in some way, there is a similarity that he and his Father. There's a father-son relationship. He's saying, "Just as I'm in the Father, you are in me." There's some parallel, some way in which there's this father-son relationship. There's this father-child relationship over here as well between him and us. There's a parallel, and he brings that out in this passage. So when you hear someone say, "I want to start a family," That's obviously, that's clearly parent language, right? Jesus started a family. He started the new humanity. So have you ever, like, have you ever wondered, I've wondered, like, why didn't Jesus, why didn't Jesus get married? Why didn't he ever, why didn't he have kids? It would have been awesome for me as a dad, me as a husband, to be able to see a perfect husband and what that looked like, or to, to see a, a perfect dad and how he would have fathered and parented his children. Why, wouldn't, why didn't Jesus ever have a family? Scripture would answer and say, well, he did. Right? Just as Jesus said, I'm a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. In a similar way, I'm a father, 
but my family is not of this world. Right? Do you remember that? There's this moment when Jesus was teaching. He's in a house, he's teaching, and somebody interrupts and says, hey, Jesus, your family's outside looking for you, asking for you. Do you remember that moment? And Jesus says, well, who, who is my family? Who are my mother and brother and sisters? And he, and he points to the people around him and he says, these are my mother and brother. This, this is my family. Those who do the will of God. And, and in that moment, he begins to redefine family. And he, he continues that throughout his ministry. I'll, I'll, we'll come to another point later on in the sermon. But he started a family, right? So he, Jesus, is everlasting father. He brings us into his family. That's number one. Number two, he provides for us perfectly. So he, he brings us into this family. But secondly, he provides for us perfectly. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, this is all the way at the end, right? The, the end of the end, the end of the book of Revelation. Everything is has finally come to a complete, and like in the, in the story of the revelation, the story of the end times, his enemies are, com- are, are conquered at this point. The enemies are done and gone and over with. Sin and hell and death is completed at this point. And Jesus says this, victorious Jesus says this, he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the one who conquers, I will will have this heritage, like this inheritance. It's all yours. The kingdom is yours, right? And then I will be his God. And here, listen, I will be his God and he will be my son or or." She will be my daughter. They will be my, you will be my children. This is father-child language. We read this passage, we've heard this passage a bunch of times, but often, oftentimes we read this passage and we don't think of Jesus using father-like language and child-like language, right? But in this way, he is father in that he's providing for us always and freely from his grace, so it's, which, is just, which is flowing from him flowing from the throne. He's the first, the last, the alpha, the omega. It's from him that grace freely flows. It's from him that we receive this eternal inheritance. Have you ever, has, has, anybody, ever, has anybody here ever heard the term father hunger? No? There, about 30 years ago, in, in the counseling world, in counseling journals, this term kind of hit really big and it was, it's, it's fascinating to watch. Um, in some of my counseling classes, I've dug into this a little bit, and I've had to read, read up on this a little bit, because counselors and sociologists and, and, and social workers have tried for years, for decades, have been trying to identify some of the root causes to some of society's biggest problems, like poverty and, and disparity and inequality in, in, in various things. Um, <coughs> pardon me. <coughs> Where homelessness... Um, youth in prison, imprisonment, stuff like that, crime rates and things like that. Um, even like sexual identity, gender identity, and some of the confusions, things like that that are going on right now. And, and the studies have been really fruitful in some ways because what we found is as a, as a whole, 
we tend to try to address poverty, but poverty is not the actual root issue. There are other root issues beyond it. We try to address inequality or racism, but sometimes there are other root issues beyond it. There are, we try to address homelessness. We try to address uh, uh, identity issues. We try to address crime, but those aren't actually, those are sometimes the symptoms and not the actual root cause. So one of the things that's fascinating was that when, when about 30 years ago, when this study, this rich study on father hunger came to the front, they were seeing all these connections for the first time. They were, they were realizing, oh, poverty and fatherlessness are, are incredibly connected. For instance, if you were even, <coughs> pardon me, I could say identity is connected, uh, crime is connected, homelessness is connected. When you think about gender identity and some of the stuff that's going on in our culture today, those who struggle with gender identity or question their identity, question their gender, are eight times more likely if they come from a fatherless home. Those who are struggling with poverty are five times more likely to be poor if they come from a fatherless home. In fact, listen to this statistic. From, this is just in America in general, in homes under the, line of the, under the poverty line, 7.8% of two-parent homes are in the poverty uh, category, a poverty demographic, 7.8%. Homes with no father are 44%. 44% of them are under the poverty line, which, which would make sense right, for various reasons and, and, and kind of pragmatic reasons. Right? But even like 90% of all homeless come from fatherless homes. 85% of youth in prison come from fatherless homes. There's, like, this, is a, this is a major problem in our society, right? And there's something that, that it proves. Like there's, there is a hunger. There is a need. There is, and, and part of me is like, man, praise the Lord for all of the single moms, all the single parents who are doing all the work and all of the friends who are rallying to help with, with, with fatherless dads and, or fatherless kids making up for what is lost. And, and this, I think this is why this is so close to the heart of God who cares for the heart of the fatherless and the widow. Right? But father hunger is a real thing. Our everlasting father provides for us perfectly. Some of you might say, well, like, listen, my dad, my dad never told me that he loves me. But listen, God shows his love for you in this, that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Or some of you might say, well, okay, but yeah, my, dad, my dad was never really there for me, right? And Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And some might say, my dad was there, but he never really stuck up for me. He was just passive. He would kind of like, things would happen and he wouldn't actually be there. He wouldn't stick up. He wouldn't stand up, right? But Jesus, Jesus stands up to and conquers every single one of our enemies. And even at the very end, the last enemy is death. That's only a matter of time. He sticks up for you, right? He gives you the power even to stand up for yourself. He gives you the armor to stand up with him. He's, and he's not going to let you down. He, like, he's not gonna, he, you have this 
This fatherly love, that hunger in your heart can never be fulfilled by any human relationship. Even a good dad, I've got a good dad, I'm grateful for my good dad, but even a good dad cannot fill this kind of father hunger that we can only find fulfilled in our everlasting father. We're, de- we're designed and intended to find this fulfillment in him. And, and, a, and, a, and a, even a good dad can't do that. I can't do that. I can't be that perfect dad to my kids because I'm not a perfect man, right? Like it's been said, the best of men are men at best. I, I'm, I'm never going to be, or as Louis Giglio said, God is not the reflection of your earthly father. God is the perfection of your earthly father. And I, I praise God for that. And I trust God in that, that, that my kids will love God, our heavenly father, in spite of me. Because of me, hopefully, sometimes, but in spite of me, because of my, fail, my faults and failures. Listen, I'm a, I'm a relational guy. Relationships mean a good deal to me. But one of the things that I've learned a lot about my own heart is I have a tendency to put way too much weight on the relationships around me and not enough weight on my relationship with God. And, and I think maybe, maybe some of you can relate to this, where you get disappointed in your relationships because you put too much, you put too much weight on them. You put too much weight on those relationships. And you're constantly, you feel like people, like you feel in your relationship, you feel in your family, you feel like people are letting you down. You're like, I, like, I need this from my daughter. I need this from my spouse. I, I need this from my friend, and you're looking to them for affirmation and identity and purpose and security. You're looking to them. You're looking to get from them what, you're, what, what Jesus ultimately provides for you as your everlasting father. He's provided that for you perfectly. But, but instead, of, instead of comfortably and confidently, joyfully receiving those things and finding those things in him, in Christ, and being able to, as a secure person, turn around as the bigger person sacrifice and give and invest in the relationships around you. Instead, you're disappointed with those relationships. You're disappointed with those people because they're letting you down. And you're, and you're, because you're expecting them to fill you up. You're expecting them to meet some expectation. You're expecting them to meet some need of yours. Husbands, let me talk to you for just a second. So many husbands look to their wives like, and, and like, you're, you're, you, you regularly run to your wives for affirmation. You run to your wives for, for like approval. Am I doing this right? Did I dress properly? Is this okay? Am I, did I say that all right? And you're looking, you're constantly looking for affirmation and security and, 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 and some kind of like identity, purpose, whatever. Like you're looking to your wife. And you're, in the meantime, your wife is saying, I just want, I'm, I want a man who's going to stand up and be a man. And lead, and lead my fa- lead the family spiritually. Lead me spirit, like right, like be a leader, be a good. And the only way you could do that is if you're secure in who you are first. And that comes from having this healthy relationship with your everlasting Father, who provides for you these things: this, this affirmation, identity, purpose, security. Perfectly provides all of that for you in Him. And when you are happy and whole in Him. You can turn around and lead without ever, like you don't need your wife in that sense. You love her, but you don't need her. You don't depend on her. And, and, and vice versa, like as a friend, you don't need your friend's affirmation. You don't need your friend's approval. 
And so you become, you, in that sense, you, you become free to then lovingly give to them and love them and sacrifice for them and lead them because you are who you are and you have what you have in your everlasting Father who provides for you perfectly. So <coughs> he, he brings us into his family. He provides for us perfectly. Number three, he knows us intimately. Let me say this just quickly. He knows us intimately. There's a great psalm that captures the divine fatherhood in some really tender ways. Psalm 103, where, where we hear this language where the psalmist says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. He shows, I love this language, he shows compassion to his children. There is a way, like every father, every parent views their own children differently than they view anyone else's. And and there's a way that every parent views their own children that nobody else can view them, right? Like they know them, they know them, they get them, they hear their laugh, they see their facial expressions, and they understand exactly what's going on. There's a way, there's a, there's a space in their heart, there's space in their mind for that child that only they can get. And that's reflected here in this passage. As a father shows compassion to his children, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. He knows us. He's intimately acquainted with every last detail of you. Physically, he knows, he knows everything about you. Physically, emotionally, chronologically, he knows the beginning and the end of your day. You know, he, he formed you in your inward parts. He knitted you together in your mother's womb. He knows the hairs of your head. He knows the cares of your hearts. He knows the numbers of your days. He, he knows everything about you. There's nothing that he does not know. He knows you. And he still wants to be your father, which is pretty cool. He knows you completely. So when you read that, when you understand that and believe that, like all the way down, then you know, you know you're not just a number. You're not just a face in the crowd, in a sea of faces. I have a father. He knows my name. Even before time began, he, he knew me. He knew Tim Buchek. He called me out in this home in New Jersey. And he came for me. And he knew that. He looked down the tunnel of time since before creation and, and he, he knew my name. And that blows me away. And he is, in that way, everlasting father. So he brings us into his family. He provides for us perfectly. He knows us intimately. And number four, he loves us unceasingly. He loves us unceasingly. Psalm 103 also says in verse 17, but the steadfast Love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. There's our, our word, right? Everlasting Father. On those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. That's family language. So he loves us unceasingly. Here's one of the marvelous things that we can learn from this name, wonderful, no, everlasting Father. In the Hebrew construction of the phrase father is the primary word and everlasting is the term that describes fatherhood. It's not describing, everlasting is not describing the Messiah. Everlasting is describing his fatherhood. Does that make sense? So 
He's not saying that Jesus is eternal, though he is. That's not what this passage is saying. That's not what this title is saying. He's saying that he is everlastingly your father. I think I hit it at one point when I was writing my notes and I, and I wrote, he is your forever father. I think that gets at the heart of it. And I think that's one of the things that I would love for you to take home from this is that when we think of this Jesus, when we think of this coming king, when we think of this Messiah, and we think, well, who is he? And what does it mean that he's everlasting father? It means that Jesus reigns and rules in a way that's like a father. Jesus is the king who treats his people not as subjects, but as family. And that's pretty marvelous. So he brings us into his family. He provides for us perfectly. He knows us intimately and he loves us unceasingly. How would you live if you were absolutely convinced that Jesus knew you? Convinced that Jesus was for you? That he was with you completely, forever. What would that do? How would that change your relationships? How would that change the way you view yourself? How would that change the, the, the needs, your emotional needs, and where you find the fulfillment for them? How would that change the way you live? We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. You probably saw on the way in, you saw the, the, t- the tables set and ready to be passed out. I want to ask if the elements could be passed out. I want to I invite you to prepare your hearts um, and prepare your minds by, by, on one hand, yes, like come and talk to the Lord and if there's anything that you need to confess, confess it to him. But think of it in these terms. When Jesus celebrated the Lord's Supper, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, it was the celebration of a very particular meal called the Passover, right? And in the Old Testament, when God was instituted, when God was describing the Passover, who was it that God told Israel, I want you to celebrate the Passover with these people around you? Who was it that you were supposed to celebrate the Passover with? It was your family. And who was supposed to host the Passover? Who was supposed to lead the Passover? It was the Father. And so Jesus, at the end of his life, says, I want to celebrate this meal. I want to redefine this meal. And I want to, I want to get it looking kind of future forward, right? And who am I going to invite? I'm going to invite my disciples, the new family, the new humanity. And I'm going to host That's why we call it the Lord's table. He's our host as our everlasting father. So would you please come and and let's pass out the elements.